there's four main things that cause disease. It is bacteria, viruses, fungi, and parasites. Mold is two things. It's a spore, and then you have the living organism, which is when that spore meets with water and has a food source and grows into a living organism. If we can start to research what different species of molds cause or exacerbated certain symptoms to give the public the information that they need so that they can make better decisions in their homes. It's so important to have a healthy home when you're looking at the biology of your own body. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Okay, friends, I have been wanting to do an episode on mold ever since I started this show. I personally had my own health challenges with mold and it was so bad and I became a little bit neurotic about assessing if I have mold in my environment and how to properly prevent it and deal with it. Michael Rabuno ended up being the perfect source for this. My conversation with him was so amazing that we actually had to do it in two parts because we just didn't have enough time with the first interview to get to everything that I wanted to cover. I am so grateful for his time and what he's doing. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. We dive deep into so many topics, so many questions that I personally have, and I bet a lot of you guys have as well, like how to actually get rid of mold. Does getting rid of moisture and water get rid of mold? What's needed to grow mold in the first place? How is mold treated in the Bible, which is super cool? How to test for mold? Why typical testing might not actually be effective? How long mold actually lasts in your environment? Should you move? How should you vet companies for remediation? What should you do with your contaminated belongings? So many things. I cannot wait to hear what you guys think. And if after listening, you would like to get Michael's air test to test your own environment, you can go to thedusttest.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get a discount. That is thedusttest.com slash Melanie Avalon with the coupon code Melanie Avalon for a discount. And we will put all of that information in the show notes. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash moldmedic. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then check out my Instagram, find the Friday announcement post, and again, comment there to enter to win something that I love. If you are enjoying the show, the best way to support it, I promise, is to subscribe and or write a brief review in Apple Podcasts. It helps so much more than most people realize. So thank you so much in advance for that. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric, or focused on a certain type of person, and I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. 
Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque, it can help alleviate pain, and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON, as well as a 20% off code when you text AVALONX to 877-861-8318. That's AVALONX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now. Before we change to subscriptions, you can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. 
that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity. If you are using conventional skincare makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up and just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash cleanbeauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally, completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Michael Rubino. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I'm about to have. It is about a topic that I am so, so passionate about. And honestly, ever since starting this show, I've been so eager to do an entire episode dedicated to this. So this is, I think, going to be so incredible, so valuable for so many people. So the backstory leading up to this, after I graduated from college, I moved into an apartment and started feeling not well. Before that, I was very energetic and very like didn't perceive having any acute health conditions. And for two years, I lived in this apartment and I, I mean, life was so exciting that I kind of just powered through and I don't think I realized how unwell I was feeling. But after I moved out of that apartment, literally when I was moving out and moving all the furniture, I realized that there was black mold everywhere (laughs) behind my bed. We found some in the walls. It was just not good. In addition to the oven had been leaking carbon monoxide every night, which was not good either. But in any case, after that, I became acutely aware of the effects of mold on our health and 
very concerned with mold in our living environments, started really researching it. And since then, I've lived in multiple apartments and have had some flooding issues and water issues multiple times. And when that happened, I was all over it with testing and making sure that, you know, that there wasn't a mold situation again. That said, even with my obsession with the mold, when the water instances happened later, I was still very overwhelmed and confused as far as what testing to do. Was the testing effective when we did, like when my apartment complex did remediation, was that effective? There's just a lot of unknowns. So I am so thrilled to be here today with Michael Rubino. He is the, well, he's the CEO of Home Cleanse which was formerly known as All American Restoration, which is a company that is dedicated to addressing this issue. And I had actually, I was very familiar with him. His people reached out to me, but I had heard him before in my own journey of trying to find clarity with the mold situation. He's worked with Gwyneth Paltrow and I'd heard him on her podcast. And he also has a book called The Mold Medic, an expert guide on mold removal, which I had not read. And so I read it when they reached out and oh my goodness, it was incredible because it answered all of these questions I'd had for so long. That was a very long winded way of getting to this introduction for Michael, who is here today to help us figure out this mold issue. Michael, thank you so much for being here. Well, first off, that was an incredible introduction. And can I take you everywhere just to have that introduction all the time? Sure. Sign me up. I'm I'm here. <laughs> well, th- thank you so much for having me here today. It's great to be here. Love all the work that you're doing and, and so grateful that you know, you've educated yourself on this important topic because from my side of things, I see so many people struggling and suffering unnecessarily just because they're looking outward instead of instead of inward. What do you mean? Well, when I say looking outward, I mean like they're looking at all these different things as potential causes to their health challenges instead of inside their own four walls, you know? Mm, yeah, like so inside the home. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. No, I love that. Would you like to tell listeners a little bit about your personal story? You talk about it in the book. Your dad was in construction? Yes. And your roommate was into mold remediation or what what did your roommate do? Well, testing. He was into testing. So my roommate who later became my brother-in-law, crazy story, I know. And and I don't know if we're going to have time for all that today, but I'm certainly happy to cover that too. But it's really interesting how kind of life hands you these opportunities or these awakenings of, of what you could potentially do to not only, you know, help yourself, but to help others. And I think for that, Mold really came into the picture for me pretty strongly, I would say. I've been in this, I would say I would be, I would be in the know for since I'm five years old in terms of construction, because my dad has been in the construction space since I'm about five. He did fire restoration and had to rebuild homes, you know, all the way from scratch to halfway burnt down, et cetera. But what's really interesting about fire restoration is when you have a fire. It typically gets put out with water, and if we know about mold and bacteria, water is kind of the enemy there. It always was kind of part of the existence and part of the piece of the puzzle, but what was really interesting about my journey is really the fact that I never really looked at this from a health perspective before until after Hurricane Sandy happened in the Northeast when I started working for my dad and getting calls from people, you know, help, I'm sick, you know, my it's my house. You know, I need need your help. And 
as I started kind of connecting with people in the industry, looking at different laboratory results as to what's actually going on in the environment, correlating them with different you know results that they're taking with their doctor, it all started to make a lot of sense to me, obviously, but it's still such a niche thing. It hasn't really reached this mass awareness where people are really understanding the fact that it's so important to have a healthy home when you're looking at the biology of your own body. That's what I personally experienced. And you talk about this in the book. I just find it so interesting. The way society treats the mold and the toxins of mold in a contamination situation compared to other toxins like lead or any of the other things where there's like a cleanup type situation. And you talk about how that process is just so different. And and there's like a skepticism if you say that you're mold sensitive or that if you seem concerned about cleaning it up. Like I know with my apartment complex, when the flood that happened, it was from the apartment above me flooded. Like I, it was like 3 a.m. and it just started raining in my apartment and it was crazy. I was so adamant with them about the mold situation. And they were like, oh no, as long as there's no water, there's no mold. I was like, I'm, I'm not sure that that's accurate. <laughs> so why is that? How is mold handled as a toxin and a contamination versus other things? Well, it's not really handled on the same level that, you know, we handle lead and asbestos. You know, asbestos is, I think everybody knows that lead and asbestos is not something you want in your house. You know, you're very much willing to pay a company to come in and fix it you know, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty much just part of our, you know, society at this point. Mold, like you said, has been met with a lot of skepticism. There's almost like a stigma around it. You know, first off, no one wants to admit that they have mold as if it, as if it means they're dirty or something, which is not the case, right? Water, it's, it's water. That's earth's life source that brings all these microorganisms in. And, you know, it's not our fault, right? It happens. I think the other thing is people are skeptical because, well, first off, there's no mold pill, right? There's, there's no, you know, we've, we've gone really accustomed to some sort of pharmaceutical drug that validates the fact that there is an illness. I mean, I hate to say it, but it's kind of, kind of true. We also have this other issue of there's really no diagnoses codes in the healthcare community, meaning, you know, it, lead poisoning, right? We understand what lead poisoning is. There's a diagnosis for that. You know, you go to the hospital and they say, oh, you've got lead poisoning. Okay. Well, there's really no such thing as mold toxicity. I mean, the people that know about it use that term. But if you go to a hospital and say, I have mold toxicity, there's no code that they could put in to say that you have mold toxicity. So when you, when you put that together, I mean, it's still very much in the infancy of understanding, you know, the importance of how mold in particular might impact our health. But there's a whole host of problems that come with water damage outside of mold too. And I think, you know, it's, it's where, where do we draw the lines? And for me, you know, I'm looking at, well, I want to create healthy environments for people. And so with that in mind, you know, any particle that's a living particle like mold or bacteria can have a detrimental effect on our body. I mean, if you go to the Cleveland Clinic website and you, you, you know, pull up one of their blogs of what causes disease, they're going to tell you that there's four main things that cause disease. It is bacteria. That's a microorganism. Viruses, a microorganism. Fungi, which mold is, is part of fungi, right? And it's going to be parasites. So those are the four things that cause disease. Now, what are three of those four things 
are very, are very commonly found in our own homes. And those that's viruses, that's fungi like mold, and that's bacteria. And all of that is due to water damage, humidity, you know, and, and certain non-existent prevention methodologies that we should be having that we don't. With mold being part of the, the fungi, do you know are antifungals ever used for mold treatment or, or no? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, they definitely are. I mean, antifungals are definitely part of it. Usually they, they do antifungals to help kill things and then they use binders to help bind things. And then, you know, your the whole goal is to kill and remove from your body. So I would say antifungals, you know, most most definitely, even if you have, you know, there, there is one medical term with mold and that's aspergillosis. Have you ever heard of that? And that's when aspergillus is literally growing inside the lungs, which is a type of mold. There's obviously antifungal treatments for that in the medical field, but it's, it is, it is really, really interesting. I, I can dive more into mycophenolic acid, which is what we create antibiotics with specifically to suppress our immune system. And why would we want to take, you know, immune suppressant drugs? Well, if we have like an organ transplant, right? We don't want our body to reject that organ. And so we were going to want to suppress our immune system on purpose to accept that organ. But when you look at that and you're like, well, if mold is an immune suppressant and we make drugs to suppress the immune system from mold, why would we want to have that in our homes? Like all the work I did during all of that was all with not the conventional medical system. So I was curious if the conventional medical system ever prescribed antifungals for for mold. That's really interesting about the the lung condition. You mentioned in the book that approximately maybe 40% of the population is quote mold sensitive. So are you mold sensitive? Well, I mean, I am, but I'm probably not to the same brevity as some folks. You know, for me, when I'm around certain species, like typically for me, aspergillus kind of knocks me out. I'm allergic to cats. And so the best way to describe this is anytime I'm like going to a hotel and maybe it has a moldy HVAC system, I immediately feel like I have a cat in my face. I mean, I'm, you know, scratchy, itchy, my lymph nodes get swollen. It's, it's, it's harder to breathe. I mean, I get these really wild allergic symptoms like I do when I'm around a cat. You know, I would say that over the past 10 years of, you know, me just being in people's homes and being exposing myself to mold, even wearing masks, even wearing suits and things of that nature. I noticed that in my, you know, early thirties, I was more sluggish. I was tired all the time. I looked tired all the time. And I also was, I would say having more an acute brain fog, right? I started doing my own detox program and like it really consisted of eating really, really super clean for, you know, like 30, 60 days straight. And then I was in the sauna. When I say in the sauna, I mean like I would, <laughs> I would gradually work up to where I'm in the sauna like five hours a day, you know, drinking obviously a ton of water. I mean, uh, I had a buddy system. There's definitely some, you know, you definitely want to do it like intentionally with somebody, but that's what I did. Right. And what was really interesting about this is when I am, uh, when I was in the sauna for the first like seven days, I was barely sweating. Right. And so that to me was very odd because I always sweat. I mean, about eight or nine days into it, all of a sudden it was like something had like released and I was profusely sweating like I should be in 140 degrees. Now, 
After that, I just kept going and I did the sauna for like 30 days straight, pretty intensively, kind of like what we're talking about. And was really interesting was after those 30 days, I mean, not only did my skin look better, I felt I felt kind of like a clean slate. I mean, I was waking up feeling refreshed for once. I was, you know, I wasn't I wasn't sleeping any different, but I felt just like I was getting better sleep. The acute brain fog had definitely dissipated and the fatigue was was just completely gone. I was even like just having better bowel movements and like GI issues. So whatever was whatever was happening to me over all the toxins and mold and bacteria that I've been subjected to, you know, being in this profession, it definitely helped make a massive difference for me when I, you know, kind of intentionally tried to to jumpstart it. I also lost like 35 pounds in that process. And so it was really interesting to me because I think weight gain was another symptom that I missed on. You know, I gained like 50 pounds in the course of about two years. And that was interesting is like, if you look at what I eat, I eat like a chipmunk. Every time, you know, my wife is super healthy. And so we, I'm always eating these like cauliflower rice bowls with, you know, protein and veggies. And like, it just, you would think that the way I was gaining weight that I was eating cheeseburgers every day, it just wasn't making sense. Like something was abnormal inside my body. And so once I did that detox, it was like a reset, metabolism's back, lost like 35 pounds right away. And now I'm at the, the last like 20 pounds or so that I need to lose that, you know, it's, it's the hardest weight to lose where you got to be super more intentional. So that's my plan for this uh, upcoming year. I love that. So was that a traditional heat sauna or an infrared sauna or what type of sauna? So I did a traditional, yeah, steam sauna. And it was just because like the, you know, neighborhood gym had one. And so I was just kind of utilizing that. I was running first to like get the blood flowing. You know, the idea is you want to get circulation going because circulate toxins are stored in fat cells for people, for those that don't know that. And so you really want to get the, to break up fat cells, you really want to get things circulating. And so I would do that and then go sit in the sauna. You know, it was, it was very intense, but it, like, I never felt better. And honestly, it's, I, I, I love the sauna. I think it's so, so it's just a smart thing to do. It's probably the cornerstone of my detox experiment as well. And so I have an infrared sauna and I, I do it every single night and it's hard to describe if you haven't done it, but you just feel clean after like internally. Are you concerned though about with the steam saunas? It sounds like that would actually be the perfect condition for mold. Are you concerned about mold in the sauna? For this one, I mean, it had ventilation in there. I didn't see any mold in there. You know, certainly it can be if it's not done well. Definitely depends on the place and the way it's installed. Maybe maybe steam isn't the correct because it's kind of like the, it's like the rock. I guess it is like steam, right? It's electric. It's got the rocks. It generates that heat. But, you know, it has to be well ventilated, you know, so it's not something you want to like buy and put in your closet. I think at home, if you're going to have an at-home one, having an infrared is the best thing to do. Which speaking of, okay, so foundational question, which like I mentioned, I have had a lot of pushback on what is the literal actual conditions required for mold? And is it true? Because I can't tell you how many people would tell me, oh, we took the water away, so there can't be mold. Well, you know, if there's no water, you won't have growth, right? So, but if if something grew, before you took the water away, then it's still there, right? So that that I think clears that up. A lot of people think that 
you know, oh, if I want to just get rid of the mold, I'll just install a dehumidifier and dry the place out. And well, you know, you're definitely going to help stop future mold growth. But once it's there, it's there. And so it's it's alive. It's well. If you take away the water, it'll definitely produce less. You know, the terminology is that it hibernates or goes dormant, but it's still there. You could still test for it. You would still find it. It's still there. I know this because we have tested these different types of places over the last 10 years, places with active leaks, places with leaks that were fixed, and we're still finding the presence of mold even when the water is fixed. So I think that kind of tells the story, even if it's not producing and it's producing less, if it's, you know, if it's still producing, it's still impacting your air quality. And so you always want to keep that in consideration. What does mold need to grow? It needs really two things, water, moisture, doesn't have to necessarily be a leak, could be humidity, humidity is moisture too. It could be vapor diffusion, meaning if you have like a basement that's subgrade, you're always going to have the wet outside drying to the inside, which is going to be in your basement. And that will increase the relative humidity and bring moisture to allow something like mold to grow. It also needs a food source, which is kind of an irrelevant discussion because almost everything's a food source, you know, including your dust. So I, I don't know, I've never met a person that had a dust-free home. Uh, I never will. So you always have the pretty much the ingredient for mold to eat, to feed off of. It doesn't necessarily need to be dark, though, you know, it typically does end up being dark where these dark, damp spots are, but it, it can grow if there's light too. But I think that's important because, you know, if it can grow in a greenhouse, right, it can grow in a room that has windows or that always has the lights on. I have some follow-up questions about that. One, so all of those things that you just listed aren't actually the mold itself. So where is the mold? Oh yeah. So we should, so we should talk about that, right? So mold is two things. It's a spore, which is a, we'll, we'll call the particle. And then you have the living organism, which is when that spore meets with water and has a food source and grows into a living organism, kind of like how a seed becomes a plant. But since mold's kind of ugly, we'll call it a weed instead of a plant, just because that's kind of kind of lines up better. As we as we look at that, so we have two things. Our home always has the spores of mold, so the seeds of mold. There's nothing you can do about that as part of our ecosystem. You know, keeping a clean home, dust free, you know, like, or cleaning and removing dust regularly is going to be pretty successful at keeping the amount of spores that you have in your home low. But when that spore then gets met with water, which could be a roof leak, could be windows leaking, could just be high humidity, could be in the basement where you have that vapor diffusion we talked about. But once it starts to grow into an organism, then it sporulates, meaning now it creates more spores in that location that are, some of them are getting aerosolized, but some of the actual purpose is for it to sporulate close together so that it grows and colonizes together. Like it's an organism, right? What do organisms want to do? They want to survive and they want to reproduce. And so that's what it's doing inside of our homes. And we're kind of the innocent bystanders of this because, you know, we're now breathing in more spores for every breath that we take. That's more that our body has to remove from our system. And this is kind of how the problem starts off inside the home. How much time is required? So if there was a water exposure in the perfect condition with the spores present, how much time is required? Like if you dry it fast enough, will it be okay? Or does it vary by species? 
it varies by species, like for, you know, for Aspergillus, Penicillium, some of these more prominent species, it takes about 24 to 48 hours to grow. So that's actually pretty quick, unfortunately. The average home, if it has a leak, takes three to five days to fully dry. So yeah, you're, you're usually, if you have a leak, it's, it's pretty rare that you wouldn't have mold unless you, you know, purposefully dried it out, cut it open so that there's no potential for trap moisture, et cetera, et cetera. But things like stachybotrys, which by the way, is like the toxic black mold that, that everyone talks about, it takes three to five days to grow. And so when I'm always looking at scientific results, I'm looking for different species. I'm trying to understand what likely happened. So if I start seeing Stachybotrys or Catomium, which is kind of Stachybotrys's cousin, you know, I'm noticing that, okay, that mold takes three to five days. So we're looking for some sort of, you know, some sort of leak that, that maybe was a little more systemic and not something that happened like, oh, this one time. That kind of helps us narrow down, okay, where could there have been some issues that we might have forgotten about, or that might have not been top of mind, or that maybe you thought were fixed years ago, but actually wasn't. Can you always see the mold? So this is really interesting, but 250,000 spores fit on the head of a pin. So mold is really, really small. So you will never see a mold spore in your life unless you have you know 25 to 50 times optical zoom goggles which if they make those, please send them my way. The organism itself, yes, you can see it if it's colonized largely enough, you know, to be at least 250,000 of them on the head of a pin in that reference. So, you know, when you put it from that perspective, if you see it on the wall, there's already a lot there. But then let's take another, let's take, because this is all very, you know, unfortunately confusing. So we have to then sidestep to another area here where, you may have a large problem, but it's behind the wall. And so the front of the wall looks totally fine, but yet behind it is horrible. You know, I think Gwyneth mentioned on her podcast, right, that when you, I mean, when you walked into her place, you didn't see anything. Like it looked totally fine. I mean, I remember, I'll never forget the meeting, the first meeting that I had at this house with like her seven, you know, contractor people that were like totally in disbelief of what we found and what the plan was to eradicate it. And it was the majority of the issue was underneath her bathtub. Her bathtub. I remember her talking about that. Yeah. So, but like if, if you walk into the room, right, the place is immaculate. You don't see anything, but that the second you disconnect the bathtub and lift it up, it's like, Whoa, there's this massive problem. And it was actually that exact moment where all like seven of those people called me in a panic. We found mold. What do we do? It's like, well, no shit, Sherlock. We know there's mold. We told you there was mold. We knew we would find it. That was the goal, right? So, but what's really interesting is that's that's the exact moment that they're all like, wow, maybe mold is a little different than what I was thinking. And, you know, and it's totally fine because I connected those dots about 10 years ago, but I, I too was at that standpoint where... I was like, oh, I didn't really think this was a big deal until I saw that it was, you know? Yeah, that happened to my cousin recently. Like, she kept getting sick, and they're, like, very holistic. Like, they're into all of the things, and they couldn't figure it out. And then they, I don't know how they found it, but in her bedroom, like, like right behind the wall, it was just a massive mold issue. So, I mean, that's that's just really scary. So, 
you, you mentioned these really toxic types of mold that take multiple days to grow. And in the book, you have a very long list of all the different types of molds and what they can do. It's a really fun time. So what's the difference between like allergenic, pathogenic, toxigenic, the three different types? Is it just the symptoms they inflict on people or is it actually like, how are they different, the different types of mold? Well, it's because like certain species of mold are known to be toxic and have this toxic effect on the body. And so we call those toxigenic. Some of them are more neurological impacting. And so we call those pathogenic. And then some of them, you know, really are more allergy prompting molds that kind of give us this allergic reaction feeling. And so we call those allergenic. But essentially, you know, yeah, they're known to cause different symptoms you know, and again, I, I keep saying this gets very confusing and I apologize. I didn't make all these rules. Some of these molds can produce what's called mycotoxins. And so you might have an allergenic mold like aspergillus, but it's capable of producing ochratoxin A. And so now we have this, now we have this non-toxic mold, but also produces toxins, which are toxic. So it can get very, very confusing in that regard. It, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to get worse before it gets better because we know right now there are over 100,000 species of mold. And so we study about 36 of them. And we don't do a great job studying them. When I, I say we, I mean more like the whole profession itself because clearly, you know, we've obviously known about mold a very long time. We've known that it, that it's a problem on our health a very long time. I mean, there's a, literally an entire mold remediation protocol in Leviticus, part of the Old Testament in the Bible. Is it a good protocol? Uh, actually, it's a fantastic protocol. So I'll I might as well share it now. So what it is, <laughs> what it is, is this, basically if they had mold growing inside there, there were stone houses at the time. So if they had mold growing in these stone houses, they would first try to clean it. All right. And then they would have a priest come in and bless it, you know, to, you know, basically pray that it doesn't come back. If it came back, they would demolish the entire structure, carry it a mile outside the village so that it didn't infect the other houses inside the village. And I found this so fascinating because I think one of the number one questions that people always ask me is like, mold's been around forever, you know, probably even before humans. I'm like, why is this such a big deal today in 2022? And it's like, Maybe it's always been a big deal, but you know, like there's life, right? And we have all these problems in life. And sometimes we, you know, focus on other problems and we forget about older problems. And this is one of those cases to follow up on the second part of that question. You know, since 1970s, when Richard Nixon was president, what did we do? We started, you know, chasing China and Russia to become, you know, the world superpower. And through that, we wanted to be responsible and energy efficient, right? So it's always it's always politics that gets us in the mess, by the way. So we start going in and, and changing all of our standards to be much more energy efficient. And we, we haven't stopped. We still do this very thing today. And through that, there's, a, there's good that comes out of that, you know, cheaper electric, better for the environment, all good stuff. But what, what we tend to do as a society, and we do this all the time, is we rush into things without thinking of the consequences, right? So we build these tighter homes, they're more energy efficient, yay, but they're also tighter. And what does that mean? That means that if we have things like chemicals or toxins or mold or bacteria, even viruses inside of our home, what does that do? If we have no air exchange, that means we're breathing in more particles 
for every breath that we take that gets into our body, then our body has to fight to remove all that stuff, right? Than we would if we were breathing outside, right? So when people say there's mold outside, so it shouldn't matter, you don't get sick outside, so you can't get sick in your house. No, you don't get sick outside because you have an infinity volume of air. And so you're breathing in less particles every time you take a breath than you would inside. And it's just that that's really the name of the game. The other statistic that we look at is, you know, the EPA suggests that indoor air quality is usually five times worse than outdoor air quality. So staggering, right? So it's already five times worse. Plus we have less volume of air. What do we think we're going to get? And this is really kind of the brunt of all of this stuff as it, as we look at it, it's like, you know, I look at everything and I'm like, well, duh. Right. But the problem is, is that there's not one organization where all of these tidbits of information are hosted on one place that help you connect these dots. Because if they did, right, then there wouldn't be so much skepticism. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. I see those stats all the time about the indoor air quality. Is that on rooms without air purifiers and air filters? Like if you had super... Okay, so in my apartment, I I'm in like just a you know a smaller apartment. I have I have like six air purifier units. I mean, I'm just crazy. Do air purifiers work or help? Well, here's what air purifiers are. They're vacuums with filters on them. So they filter out, they draw in air, they filter that air and they push it back out. So, do they work? Absolutely. Do they help? Absolutely. Where might they not be as effective in places that have a have a lot of organisms producing a lot of particles and toxins, right? Because at some point, you if you have more particles and toxins being created than what can be removed, well, then you know it's not it's not going to give you the 
value that you're looking for. Do you have thoughts on some of the air purifiers propose that they actually have technology that kills the mold? Do you have thoughts on those technologies? Yeah. So imagine if I told you to go outside and just like kill a bunch of seeds so that you don't get weeds in your yard. How, how might you look go, doing that? How would I look? How would you look? Like if you just like pictured yourself going out and like, I don't know, trying to like kill seeds or like stomp on seeds so they didn't grow. Pretty ineffective. <laughs> so like my philosophy with, and I say philosophy because it's really what it is. My philosophy is why are we trying to kill something, especially something like a spore isn't really alive yet. It's, it's basically the seed, right? So it still needs moisture or food to grow. You know, why are we trying to kill something that, that A, isn't even alive and B, all we have to do is remove it. It's, it's kind of like this. Imagine, you know, you had like a dirty countertop, right? And there's crumbs and all this stuff. And I'm like, hey, take this, you know, I don't, we'll just use bleach because, you know, bleach kills things, right? Take this and just spray some bleach over it, right? And just leave it, walk away, it'll dry, it'll be fine. Well, there's all, there's still going to be all these crumbs and grime and grease and disgusting stuff still on your counter because you're just spraying something. You're just trying to kill it. You're not actually removing it, right? And so, the problem that I have with the kill philosophy is that every every biological any anything biological is going to leave behind some sort of footprint. You know, if you killed me right now, there would be a body and blood and all this stuff in place, right? It, it I wouldn't just vanish. And so the thing, the thing about this all, whole thing is, is we keep trying to kill all these things, but we don't understand what that actually does in the environment. And furthermore, we don't know what that does if somebody breathes that in after, right? I mean, we have, you know, when, when, like there's a crime scene investigative unit, right? When you have like a dead body or something, there's a whole team that comes in and helps like scientifically remove the bloodborne pathogens. I mean, there's like a whole business around cleaning this stuff up, right? Why is that? Because there is something that gets left behind that can have so much bacteria and so much viruses and all these other microbiological contaminants that we don't want to expose to other people in that area. And so, it just really sparks the question in my mind, you know, do we really want to go around killing things or do we just want to try to remove them? It's really interesting because like I said, I'm a little bit obsessed with air purifiers and it's just interesting to see the dichotomy between how the different companies will approach it. Like the traditional, you know, HEPA filters and stuff, like you mentioned, like a vacuum. So they're saying like, you know, we're physically removing the particles compared to the other technology where they're saying, they're saying that they're killing it they kind of not put down, but they kind of say the other companies, oh, they're just removing it. They're not killing it. It's just interesting because both of them kind of point down at the other for not doing what they should be doing when it sounds like maybe you need to be doing all of it. Sure. I mean, you know, the only, the only problem that I, well, here's, here's the problem with, with some of the technologies that are aimed around killing, you know, especially like oxidizers and and, and that, that route of, of uh, chemical exposure. You what happens when what happens when you kill something? Well, you know th- what they do is they test it for efficacy, right? So if I take a particle, and let's say no matter what the technology is, it kills it or destroys it or whatever, we know that that the in this universe a particle cannot be created nor destroyed. So anything that uses the word destroy, I always find very interesting because what it actually does it is it just it blasts it into smaller particles, 
right? So if you if you break something, you know, if you break a glass, what is it going to do? It's going to shatter into smaller pieces of glass, right? So if we break, if we kill something, okay, now we've just shattered into smaller pieces. Great. A, that's harder to remove smaller pieces than the bigger pieces. And the bigger pieces, by the way, are already 25 to 50 times smaller than what the eye can see. And so, yeah, when they test for efficacy purposes, yeah, I mean, now it's, you're not going to find that you're, you're not going to find what you're looking for because it's now smaller pieces. So it's not going to match up. And so that's fine for testing purposes. But my whole thing is, but how do these smaller pieces impact a person? And if you go on the EPA's website, I love this one. You type in like EPA bleach and mold, just Google those three keywords together. You'll find this article and what's in the EPA highlights this one phrase. And it says, you know, we should, you should not use bleach for mold. In fact, you should not use anything to kill mold because even dead mold may cause an allergic reaction in some. They use allergic because, you know, we haven't really crossed over the mainstream bridge of, you know, mold can do other things and allergies, but I at least take a win on that because when I look at that, I say, good, well, they're, they're of the same mindset here where, you know, killing, we don't understand what killing might do to somebody, especially for people who are, might be sensitive to their environment as it is. You know, if you were to put a compound like bleach or whatever on mold in the dying process, do they like release toxins. And, and so when you're doing your remediation, which we still have to get into, does the environment become more toxic while that's happening? So to answer your first question, I think that, I think it's highly possible, right? Because what, why do, why does mold produce mycotoxins? It does so as a self-defense mechanism. So if you start, you know, spraying chemicals at it and start, you know, trying to kill it, as is dying, an organism's job is to survive and reproduce. It, it may be producing mycotoxins. We don't know for sure because I don't think really enough testing has been done around that that topic. But it's definitely a, a it's definitely pretty theoretical for sure. There's also been some interesting bylines around how Wi-Fi, like increased Wi-Fi, may make mold feel threatened and produce mycotoxins, which is interesting too kind of roping in the whole EMFs. Because what is EMF? It's low levels of radiation, right? Supposedly safe for humans, but something as small as mold, who knows, right? We're not we're not studying the effects typically of, of EMFs and Wi-Fi on mold. And maybe we should. What's what's really interesting just to tie that little piece together is right in Chernobyl, they found radiation eating fungi, mold essentially. So it's really interesting because mold is obviously evolving and adapting to its surroundings. And especially with, you know, if it's, if its job is to survive, one of the things that, that an organism does is it starts to be able to eat. It starts to be able to figure out how to eat certain things that maybe it wasn't able to eat in the past. And so if I find that really fascinating too, because you know, how, what, what effect does that have? And that new species of, is that going to help evolve that species of mold? Is it going to make that species of mold more toxic? We don't know. Is that species producing more mycotoxins because it's eating radiation? I, I wish I knew the answer to that, but these are all really good questions that we should really be looking at because I think we've always known mold's a problem. It's tending to be more of a problem, especially the way our, the, our construction's going. And I think we ought to give it a little more, you know, 
time on our hands because of how easy it is to grow in our homes to make sure that we understand more of it, especially in connection with the medical community on how it might affect our health. To answer your second question, which I believe was, you know, when you're remediating, does the house get more toxic? And I would say that, you know, in most cases, yes. And that's pretty much why if you want me to work with you, you know, step one is you just have to move out of your house because what ends up happening is let's say you have a bathroom that's, let's just say you only have a bathroom and your bathroom has a problem. The rest of your house is pristine. Okay. That when I put that bathroom under negative pressure, which is what you do to stop the mold from spreading into other rooms, you are also pulling everything from every interstitial cavity across your home towards that bathroom. Okay. And so all of the pristine areas that we thought might have been pristine that could have had some mold or could have had some bacteria, toxins, etc., are now going to move through the air across your entire home towards that bathroom. So if you're living, even on the other side of the house, you're just going to be constantly hit with more particles because we're controlling all the airflow to go towards that location. So with that being said, you know, when you're kind of embarking on this journey to create a healthy home, you know, it's really something you want to do and you want to like, you know, go away for a couple weeks, a month, however long it takes, find a temporary place like an Airbnb, just whatever, whatever it takes. Because, you know, there's this scientific process of really understanding what's going on in the environment and then making the repairs necessary. You, you, really, you really have to understand how and, and which this process works to make sure you're not an adverse, having adverse reactions from it. How do you actually create the negative pressure and how do you decide to create negative pressure or positive pressure? Great point. So negative pressure is created typically by drawing more air towards that space than than the room itself has available. So how we typically do this is we use negative air machines or air scrubbers. And what, what those machines have is they have an exhaust where air exhausts out and then it has kind of the uh a return where air gets drawn in kind of similar to like an hvac system return exhaust supplies etc and what we do is we exhaust the air outside of that space so usually like a nearby window open that window we build like a window manifold we connect the tube to it and what it's doing now is it's drawing air into that machine but that air is moving then outside so it never provides makeup air back into that room. So it's always negatively drawing that air, right? And when you're doing that, and you do that because when you open up a wall, you know, we talked about 250,000 spores on the head of a pin. Well, you open up that wall and boom, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of spores or what have you are going to be aerosolized at that exact moment. So that air scrubber is going to pull that towards the machine, trap it into the filter and blow clean air out. But it's really the controlling of the air pressure that does the trick, not the plastic or anything else that you may have seen inside one of these remediation projects. And so when you use that, you're obviously controlling the airflow. But, you know, our house has tons of interstitial cavities, nothing's hermetically sealed. And so we're obviously going to be pulling air from other places towards that location. And that's where, you know, that's where things get tricky because, 
even if you find a problem, it doesn't mean that your house doesn't have, you know, other little minor issues that maybe aren't making a significant difference. But when you start to pull them all together into your living space, that's when you, you it may be really problematic. And can you also do the flip side where you do the pressure the reverse way with the positive? Yeah. So there's positive pressure and that's where you're pushing out more pressure than you're pulling in. Hospitals have this, right? So that one space isn't being impacted by the spaces around it. Hotels typically have this too. Like if you've ever gone to a hotel and you open the door and like as you're opening and it's like wind is gushing you in the face. Yeah. That's, that means that the building's positively pressurized. It's pushing out more air than it's pulling in. You know, when would you want to do that? Well, let's say you're working in like a basement and there's no windows. There's just no way to create negative pressure. What you would want to do is you'd want to create positive pressure outside of that space. And you do that so that nothing from the basement can ever escape the basement because there's more air pushing towards it. It's kind of it's kind of like when you have an HVAC, you have a return supply, right? So the supply is is basically pushing air into a room. Uh, unless that room has any air returns in it, it's always going to be positively pressurized. Typically, we have, I mean, obviously, building codes have changed as of recently. So if your home's pretty new, you'll have almost a return in the supply in every bedroom. But previous to that. You know, mostly the hall, your hallways, your living spaces are all under negative pressure constantly, and your bedrooms are always, and other rooms are always positively pressurized. So everything kind of is always trapped in our, you know, the, the common areas where we spend a lot of time. It's it's very interesting. You have to kind of know the, under, you have to understand pressurization. When to use certain pressurizations so that you can make sure that you're getting the results you're looking for while you're working in this. I had a horror story once where a client calls me up and she's like, all right, I have remediation going on and I'm here. And I'm like, well, that's problem number one. Okay, let's keep going. Problem number two we found out was that the company had more pressure outside the containment than inside the containment being drawn. So they had an air scrubber inside the containment like it was supposed to out the window the whole nine but it was set to half. So maybe it was running at, for argument's sake, let's call it 200 CFMs, okay? And that means that the air is circulating 200 times over the, the course of a minute, right? We have then the outside unit was set at like 500 CFMs, okay? So what that means is that more air is being drawn outside the containment, even though it was under neutral pressure, it doesn't matter. More air is being drawn that, that way than the containment itself. And so these guys were accidentally cross-contaminating all the stuff that they were doing across the entire home just because they didn't understand pressurization and how to set things up properly, right? And so is that such a problem? I mean, no, because you can clean it and, and you can fix it. But is that, was that a problem for her at that exact moment? Yes, because she started you know, not feeling well and it was, you know, she was living there and they said it would be fine and, you know, it just kind of led down this path where now she's not feeling well and she's scared obviously. And she just needed a plan of, okay, like stop, have them stop that, have them fix this. And then they need to clean the place after. And we need to test and make sure that it was clean properly. And it's just, we make it simple, but you know, at the end of the day, if you don't know what you're doing here, you know, you, you can kind of screw the pooch on this. When I had the, the flood situation and I kept asking them to test for mold and to like do stuff and they were 
not about it and dragging their feet. And then finally, I just hired somebody to test for myself and it came back positive and I showed them that. And then once I showed them that, they were like all over it. And my mom was saying, commenting how, how they do take mold really seriously because buildings can get condemned for it if they actually find mold. Is that true? And the reason buildings get condemned, is it because the buildings could literally rot from the mold? Like, why do we actually take it seriously if there is mold sometimes? Or maybe we don't. You know, I wish everyone took it seriously. I don't, you know, I've I've been doing this a long time now and I I, I wish I could say that. I, I don't believe that that's true. I think some people take it seriously. I think others, you know, even in that case, like you had to prove to them that there was an issue that they weren't willing to check themselves. And, and that's just at that point now it's a liability to them because you have proof and you can sue them and it's a whole thing, right? But the fact that they made you get proof when, you know, they could have easily, you know, inspected and checked and made sure themselves, you know, I, I hate that part of the story, right? Because I think that, you know, this is what we do to each other. You know, we have this skepticism from a whole societal standpoint and some of us in society might own buildings or you know, might own some rental properties and rent stuff out. And if we're all skeptic about the things that this can do, then we're not going to take it seriously until someone threatens us with lawsuit or, you know, proof or things of that nature. And it just kind of opens the door to, you know, I don't know, not love one another and respect one another. And I think that's kind of, you know, a lot of what's been happening in our society these past few years that, that really sucks. I think that it, we, we should be taking it more seriously than we currently are. And of course, look, you have some great landlords. You know, I actually had a mold issue in my rental right now. Wife and I just recently bought a house where had a ton of mold, by the way, which I'm documenting, which will be fascinating for people to see. But we're fixing that house. We've been in this rental. In the meantime, we found some mold in the HVAC because there was unfortunately a little, you know, terror running around in our attic that uh, ripped some holes through the ducts. And the landlord was really great. I don't think the landlord has listened to any of my podcasts, seen any of my posts. He just happens to be a good human being and was like, I will take care of this, right? Not everyone gets that lucky, which is the unfortunate part. I'm, I do a lot of expert litigation work for families who, you know, unfortunately uh, have no legal recourse on some of the damages that they've been through. You know, that part to see that side of things is really painful for me because you know, it, it kind of goes against the world that I'd like to see where, you know, maybe we care more about each other than we do about the almighty dollar, you know, and, and if we can ever get there, my God, it'd be amazing. With that being said, there's a lot of unfortunate necessary changes in regulations and protocols. For example, a lot of landlords in, in a lot of states, they're allowed to have like their super go and address and remediate mold. And while that may be okay in smaller issues, especially if they know what they're doing, you know, if we're going to allow that, maybe we should make sure that the supers are properly trained for that. You know, this is, this is opinion, right? This isn't law. This is my opinion that the law should change. I think that I've seen some horror stories from that side of things to warrant such changes. I also believe that, you know, our current building standards do very little to address water damage and problems that these, these water damage situations can bring. We have pretty good guidelines, not laws, but guidelines that people just don't simply follow. And when they don't follow them, you kind of, you kind of can tell, right? There's problems in the home. And so a lot, unfortunately, a lot of these situations really put people in, in tons of hardship. And this, this also kind of shakes out into the insurance industry too. I mean, some of the insurance companies are great and some of them are not so great. And 
I've seen people, you know, really been, been through the ringer, both on the financial hardship side, but also like your health is deteriorating. I mean, that it's just, it's a nightmare. Well, that was one thing I loved reading about in your book and your bio. So you started a, a nonprofit during COVID for mold remediation? I did. So what did you do with that? Well, first off, starting anything during COVID is a nightmare, especially when you need the government's approval. Because uh, with a nonprofit, you know, you, you need to file to be accepted as a nonprofit, if you will. And in the middle of COVID, that process took, you know, 10 times longer than it was supposed to. Obviously, government's short-staffed and, and things of that nature, and that's just kind of how that works. And you're dealing with the IRS on that. Plus, there was all these other IRS programs that their attention was on. So everyone's forgiven, but it took a long time. And here we are in 2022 and finally got our status as of July of 2022. So Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. So it's called Change the Air Foundation. And I would say that the four main pillars are, my, one of my favorite pillars is policy reform. Policy reform is looking at all of the laws that we have across all 50 states and making sure that we are being more proactive at protecting our, our people from these harmful effects that water damage buildings can have. And that's obviously this is a, it's a broad stretch because there's so many different angles to this. But one of the first things I want to start with is we talked about lead and asbestos. They're classified as a health hazard. Mold is not classified as a health hazard on any State Department website in the United States. Now, that has to change because we're going to continue to have skepticism until we have more credible sources to point to to say this is a problem. And the State Department health websites, if they all classify mold as a health hazard, then landlords, insurance companies, everybody has no choice but to make sure that the right thing is getting done when the health hazard is in existence. That's that's like one of the first initiatives we want to do across the, the U.S. within policy reform. But it goes beyond that. I mean, there's a lot of reform that's needed, you know, in terms of protecting people. But with government and policy, it, it you have to go in baby steps because if you put too much at once, you just get you have two parties to deal with. So remember that you have Republicans and Democrats. And in order to get everybody to agree, the best strategy is to get them to agree to one or two things at once, because if you put 10 things, you're going to lose the whole, all 10 of them. And so that's been kind of the effective strategy. And we have, you know, there's like 14 different states right now, or 12, somewhere around that range that were actively advocating for policy reform. We've had I think three or four bills written and proposed in legislation. So we are making lots of headway in just uh, five or six months at Change the Air Foundation on that. We also have research as an initiative because I think, you know, there's a, there's over 280 different research pieces in relation to mold and its effects of, on our health. And they're very good pieces, different topics and different avenues. And one thing that I have as, as someone who's been in business for so long and has helped so many people is a lot of information, right? And what, what information might we have? Well, how about the information of what types of molds, how much of those molds in people's homes with coupled with what, what, what were they, how were their symptoms coupled with some of them might have medical reports from doctors 
that where they have different maybe mycotoxins that might have matched the levels of molds that were in their home. And so we have all of this great information. We have all these amazing people that want to share this information in order to propel people forward so that they nobody suffers the way that they had to suffer. And we can use that information to put together some research programs. And with that being said, if we can start to research what different species of molds and what quantities of those molds might have, you know, caused or exacerbated certain symptoms, maybe looking at different medical profiles, maybe this person had some sort of autoimmune disease or deficiency, maybe putting all of that together, we might see some patterns and we might be able to under, better understand just the effects of that mold can have on our, on our on our bodies and all different types because guess what we're all inherently different so if we can start to categorize some data and make sense of it that would be a home run and that'll open the doors for all this type this this research and testing that we can do to really nail this and give people the, the public the information that they need so that they can make better decisions in their homes and their lives we also have awareness and and, and education as our next pillar and and I think that goes without saying, right? If we're not aware of something, then we're going to be adversely affected by it. When we are aware of something, now we can take action, right? And so the more that we think that, you know, our homes cannot be a problem for our health, the more likely we are to have the homes be a problem for our health. But if we know that they can and we know how they can, then we can take action. We can, you know, test our homes once a year to make sure you know, everything looks good. And I'd love to touch on how to test that home for a screening purpose. You know, and if we can, you know, start to take action on certain things based on knowledge that we're now aware of, guess what? We're, we're going to be okay. And right now, you know, if you call 15 different people and ask them about mold, you're going to get 15 different answers. I'll tell you right now, from mold's not a problem to leave it, right, (laughs) all the way to burn your house down and run away. And so, you know, we need to have really good, credible information, and we we need people to be aware of that information. And, you know, so far, it has been uh, just an absolute nightmare. And that's one of the many reasons why I wrote this book, because I wanted people to have good information to be able to resort to in, in case they did need to, you know, do some mold remediation or find out if they had mold, et cetera. It's a testimony to how effective your actual process must be because when you were talking about buying a new home and you said that there's mold in it, my first thought was, wait, he's actually going to get a a home that already has mold in it. But then I was thinking, oh, well, if he's very confident in his ability to, (laughs) to deal with it, then, you know, that speaks for itself. So I've owned, I've owned three homes. This is my third home and all three homes have had a mold problem. I just want to throw that out there. So I've never not, I've never not owned a home that didn't have a mold problem. What I typically do is I buy these like foreclosures. This one wasn't a foreclosure, but I just, it was, it was the fixer upper house that had issues, you know, needed a new roof, new windows. And, you know, as we started opening things up, I expected to find problems and we found plenty. And yeah, I do trust in my process because it, you know, it's my process isn't really predicated on, you know, some patent or, you know, some secret formula. It's just, it's just good old science. You know, we have particles, we have organisms, you remove the organisms, you remove the particles, we test and verify, and we're good to go. I mean, it's, it's just so simple. But unfortunately, you know, everyone likes complex processes and patented stuff and this and that. But, 
the simpler it is, typically in my perspective, the more effective it always is. That leads us to the big question I said I had, and then you touched on it with the testing process. So when somebody actually sits down and is going to have this process of maybe they suspect mold, maybe they just need to do yearly testing like you mentioned. So what does that process look like? Do you hire a testing company versus a remediation company? Are they ever both the same? What questions do you need to ask? Pre and post tests, ERMI, all the things. (laughs) What do we do? Perfect. So the first thing that I'd like to start with, I, I, I think it would be really helpful to kind of guide people through my process. And this, then this way people won't need me anymore, which would be amazing only because the more I can do to educate, the absolute best that I can be here. Because um, I know I can't fix one house. I can't fix every house in the world. And so we need, to, we need to just get this, continue to get this information out there and help people. You want to start with testing the dust. Let me explain why. Previous to this conversation, a lot of people, what they do is they test the air. They hire a company, a company comes in, they take all these random air samples. And usually, not always, but usually we get a false result of your house is perfect air quality. Okay. It's less than outside. It's what you could ask for. It's great. I actually just had a client that had this happen to, and I like looked over the results and I'm like, let me tell you why it's not great. But let me tell you first why this is not effective because two only two reasons. One, most of the mold that's created in our home, and this is true of mold, bacteria, viruses, any particle, right? VOCs, formaldehyde, doesn't matter. These particles, wherever they emanate from, they don't really go that far. And what ends up happening is they settle within our dust. You know, the rule of thumb is somewhere between three and six feet. I think we all heard that during COVID, right? You know, it doesn't really fall that far from where the emanation point is. And so if you think about that, most of our problems with water on a home are going to be on an exterior wall. The archaic technology of testing homes is typically, you know, let's take an air sample in the center of a room, right? So we won't miss anything. We'll take it from the center. Well, you're going to miss everything because you're, you're very like unlikely to have a problem in the center of the room. You're more likely to have a problem on an exterior wall or a wall that has plumbing in it. So the further away that you test from the problem, guess what? The more likely you are to miss w- whatever the problem actually is. So that's, that's one part of the problem. So then if it doesn't emanate far, what happens and how does it affect us, right? Well, what happens is it settles within our dust and it binds with our dust. It just becomes part of our dust. And then our dust constantly recirculates around the home. So if you've ever sat on a couch on a sunny day and you saw that ray of light peek through the window and you saw all those dust particles floating in there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Our dust is everywhere. And what's in that dust is really important because that is what is typically making us not feel our best. With that being said, these air tests, okay, they're, they're made specifically to pick up isolated small particles like mold. So dust is too big to fit inside this cassette. And what that means is that any mold particles that are bound with our dust are not getting registered by this test. So we're missing a big portion of what we're actually exposed to. So I came up with this idea. Well, why don't we like what, instead of, you know, we need to change the narrative, right? We need to, we can't have people, people get air testing 
all the time. Like it's everyone thinks it's the gold standard of do I have mold? And it, it's not. It's it's a useful tool to help you locate sources if you know how to test it in localized areas where you suspect there may be a problem. And it also can be useful because you can poke a hole in the wall, stick a tube through it, and then draw an air, you know, draw an air sample from behind the wall, which is obviously usually where a lot of the problems are. But in the center of a room as a screening tool, because that's what you're doing, you're trying to screen the room, it's not it's not useful. And so we've all heard of ERMI, right? E-R-M-I, ERMI, many different ways to pronounce it and call it. But it's the relative moldiness index from that was developed from the EPA. And so what I don't like about ERMI specifically it is the ERMI itself. And that means that that's that index. So basically what the ERMI is, it's, it takes the, the data and it uses PCR technology to analyze the DNA of what's there. So I love that part. And then it gives you a score. Well, the score has been highly ineffective over the last 12 years since I've been doing this. And it's because it, it misleads people to think that there's like a desirable score. And it's not about the score. It's actually about the data. And if we focus on the data, we're successful. So what I did is I said, if we want to change the narrative and we want to give people success with screening their home to answer the question one way or another, right? Do I have mold or do I not? Then we need to create a technology that kind of takes what's good about ERMI and brings in a better understanding for the consumer. Because previous to that, ERMI was really like kind of an educational tool for the profession to really understand how to use it, to try to understand you know, what that data might, might mean inside someone's home. And so after about 10 years of using that data, I know for a fact how useful that data could be and how to utilize it. And it's, it's very simple. It's what am I exposed to? And what we want to do is want to take that data. Let's say we have Stachybotrys showing up. Good. Where is that coming from? Where might all the leaks be that have created wetness for at least three to five days that may be growing Stachybotrys? And by the way, molds do grow together. So you have different species that grow together. So I suspect that if we find where that Stachybotrys is, we might find where the elevated Aspergillus and Cladosporium is too, right? And so what I started doing is saying, if we start screening our homes with the dust first, then we can take that information to an inspector and say, good, help me find where these three elevated species are coming from so that we can make sure and put together a proper plan to eradicate it. And then, then we'll clean the home and remove all the dust that we possibly can. And with that, a lot of these spores that were high in the dust test are going to be exponentially removed with it every time that we clean. And so the key is we want to remove the organism first that's creating these particles and toxins then clean up to remove the toxins and particles. So with that being said, you know, the dust test is what I developed. That is using the same technology that we know from ERMI, but making it more consumer friendly. Everything's color coded. It tells you if it's 10 times higher than normal, 100 times higher or 1,000 times higher than normal. It's the same normal standards that the EPA set. So we didn't change, we didn't make a new normal or anything. We're still following that same path, but we're making it in a, we're making it in a way where we can actually take action from it and not just be confused by like, Oh, I got a 14. Is that good or bad? Or, you know, my, my friend has a two, I want a two. And it just creates a lot of confusion because I've seen 
quote unquote, good ERMI scores with horrible data showing that there's a problem and the client thought there was no problem based upon a number that doesn't really make sense of how that number got there. Hi friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality. They're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit. That's what I have. And it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving. It's just really an amazing investment. And they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon. Or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off. And that will also get you. $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. You guys were so kind. You sent me, I have it in front of me right here, your dust test. So I'm thrilled to try it. So what I will do is by the time this airs, I will have tried it so I can record in the intro some of my experience with it. For the dust test, if somebody orders it, do they order multiple kits for different rooms or how much area does it cover? So the the world is your oyster with the dust test. You know, if you want to get data on every single room, you can. You know, what's the benefit of that? You can compare it to other rooms. I have clients that get one for every room. I have clients that get one for every floor. And I have clients that just get one for the whole house, right? The difference is, is obviously it's all averages. So what it tells you is how many spores per milligram of dust that you have for each different species that it can test for. And it's, you're looking at the, the major 36 species that are prominent in, in a water-damaged environment, okay? And so when you're looking at that data from room to room, it's great to have because then it's easy to say, well, you could see the catomium gets less and less as we get to this side of the house. So we know that it's emanating from that side. It helps you kind of pinpoint uh, and, and give you some more locational data. However... We have to remember that it's a screening tool. And the idea of it is to, it's like when you're sick and you go to a doctor and you're like, hey, I don't feel well. They're like, cool, we're going to do a screen of your body and we're going to look at all these different vitamins and minerals and do some blood work and we're going to look for abnormalities. All of that is a screening tool. And what they're doing is they're looking for something abnormal to then say, okay, this is kind of weird. We need to do more testing on this avenue now, right? And so... This is what that this that kind of replicates. What we want to do is we want to screen our homes to kind of understand if there's anything abnormal going on. And then, you know, that's going to tell us if we should go a little further and maybe do some more testing to try to figure out might, where might some of these problems be. Or maybe the dust looks great and, you know, everything looks looks fine and there's no problems and you know we just want to have a cleaning regimen to you know remove spores more frequently as they come into contact with our environment maybe we want to upgrade our hvac filtration so we get better filtration and we go in that route so it's a good first step to kind of answer the question might i have a problem that i should be doing something about the way my apartment is set up i have a 
I learned a lot about the air conditioning units reading your book, but I guess whatever can be indoors, like there's like a little closet that you open and it's the whole air conditioning machine. Sure. Yeah. Like the central system. Yeah. So I'm concerned about mold in there because my unit's been freezing over a lot of nights. So it gets wet and then it stays wet and it just keeps happening and they haven't fixed it. So in that situation with this kit, would I test like directly inside of that little closet or would I test, you know, in the room outside of that closet? So what I would do is because if you have a problem in your HVAC, it's going to be evenly distributed across your place, right? And so I would be I would be collecting dust from you know every room that you have, and this way we can look and see for an abnormality. And if the place comes back that there's elevated levels of specific species, we can then do what's called like an EPA thirty six. So it's a specific swab type test that you can swab the inside of the coil where the HVAC is constantly freezing and condensating. And the reason being is because when when mold contaminates an HVAC system, it, it typically contaminates the coil. The coil, for those that don't know, it, it's basically what conditions the air, pulls the moisture out of it, and then it kind of drips down into this pan where it drains away, right? Well, that coil is always wet, like never fails. And we already know that mold and bacteria need water to grow and thrive. And so typically what we see with, you know, HVACs being a problem and distributing mold and bacteria throughout our house, it's on that coil. So we can look for abnormalities through the dust test. And then if we see some problems, we may start to say, okay, has there been any leaks? Go check underneath all of your sinks send me a picture. What do they all look like? Let's get you an EPA 36 and let's get you to swab that coil and see what comes out of it. You know, And then we'll, we'll come up with some more different strategies to help kind of pinpoint where this problem might be, be coming from. And that's going to really be helpful for us because we want to understand what do we got to do to fix it. I do have one of those units that is supposed to be the killing technology. And because they were saying if I put it right by the HVAC, then it'll be killing everything that's running through the HVAC. So regardless of whether or not that's effective in the long run with the PCR test and the dust test, I'm assuming it picks up both dead and alive. Well, the the great thing about PCR is it looks at DNA. And so unless the DNA has been altered, you're going to pick it up and you're going to find it. So it's going to pick up spores and fragments of spores. So if you have something that's destroying or killing that might be breaking these things up into smaller particles, it, it, it probably is still going to pick up some of those fragments and be able to understand that it's, oh, it's from this species based upon the DNA sequencing. So I, I think that it's, it's a great thing to have because it's, we're not going to be able to have anything that covers up problems. It's just going to tell us unbiased information as to what is there. And, you know, if, if we see too much, right, then you might have this amazing killing machine, but what we're going to say is, you know, well, that's great and all, and that's going to work better when we don't have these problems in the first place. So it sounds like the dust test is an incredible way for listeners to, at least if they, well, probably everybody could benefit from it if they need to see where they might have issues in their house. So for listeners, if they go to the dusttest.com slash Melanie Avalon, that's where you can get that kit. And I 100% recommend that. So beyond that, because that's a really great tool for people to take initiative and take things into their own hands. But then if they do need to move forward with remediation, 
what do they do? How do they vet companies? How do they find who to work with? What's the role of pre and post testing? Like just what's the whole, the whole thing? Well, let's, I mean, this is a lot to unpack, obviously, you know, and we, we, it, finding somebody that's good is, is really difficult. You know, I kind of outlined that in chapter one of my book talking about just, you know, me being in a room with a, with a guy who's been doing this for 30 years. And at that, at that point in time, I was doing it for like four or five this person didn't really understand microbiology. They really didn't understand, you know, the remediation process. And this guy's been doing it for 30 years, right? So you got to be careful. I think vetting people is really important just because they're licensed doesn't really mean much because it only takes three days of a course to get a license. Unfortunately, it's kind of like the wild, wild west. You really have people that are supposed to be handling microbiological contaminants that, you know, don't have a basic understanding of science, which is a big problem. It's it's really just construction companies that get certified and then they just start doing this. But, you know, in my opinion, it's really a specialty. I think the best way to vet somebody is to really ask them about their process, right? And, you know, if it doesn't make sense, it probably doesn't, right? And so you don't need to be an expert to kind of feel that out. You know, one of the, what are the things you want to look for? You know, are they going to use engineering controls? Meaning, are they going to put up plastic and create negative pressure in that room or positive pressure outside that room to make sure that whatever work they're doing is not spreading across the house. You also, you know, kind of want to ask what their guarantees are. You know, if you get someone else in to come in and test afterwards, do they guarantee their work or, you know, are they going to charge you to come back? I mean, that's another, another big thing that happens quite frequently. And then, you know, I, I really just, just really understanding what they're going to do, you know, how they're going to remediate, how they're going to remove the mold, because there's so many companies that rely on products, right? And products are a tool, but they're not everything. You know, you really want to understand how do you remove the roots of mold so it doesn't grow back? And how do you clean the space to make sure you're removing these particles and toxins? And, you know, you really want to dive into, you know, the thoroughness of that. I I also always ask people to to ask how long it's going to take, because you know, a thorough job is going to take longer than a quick, you know, in and out job. And so, you know, when you vet two or three companies and you're going through the process, you're going to get a bunch of different opinions. You're going to get a bunch of different pricing and you're going to get a bunch of different time lengths. And so dive into that, you know, ask the person, why is this only going to take three days? Someone else said it's going to take seven. You know, what are you doing to cut out on this time? And is that thing that you're cutting out going to benefit me or harm me, right? And so I think those are those are really good ways to kind of get a grasp around what you're paying for. Because I think most people think intrinsically that, you know, all mold remediation is the same, you know, all contracting work is the same. And so it's really just comes down to getting the best price. Unfortunately, it, it, that's not exactly accurate. And I think you always want to understand what you're paying for and, and, is that the outcome you're looking for? And I think once you kind of understand that, that's that's really the best way to vet that process. For the the testing itself, like the pre and post testing, do some companies do that themselves? And if so, should you you always use a third party instead? Yeah, you, you want a third party. I mean, some companies do do it themselves. In some states, it's actually illegal to do you know, your own testing in and out, just because, it, you know, it's a conflict of interest. If you know how to test, you could purposely test further away so that it looks better than what it might really be. I'm not saying that all companies operate like that, but it is a possibility that you could do something like that. So 
the, really the best way to do this is to, you know, get an outside perspective, you know, someone to come in. I also think, you know, when you're working on a project, you know, you kind of get used to the space. Having someone else come in to look at the space differently for the first time, I think can be a big benefit, you know, to make sure that nothing's getting missed in this process. So, you know, you, you really want to create a team that is looking to work together in your best interest as the client and not necessarily in the best interest of, you know, profit margins of a company. And so I think that the best way to do that is to just get an outside third party professional to come in and give you that unbiased view. You know, pre-testing and post-testing is an interesting concept in and of itself because the pre-test, you're really trying to do a deep dive of the home and find out where all the problems may be. Evaluate which problems are big, which are small, which need attention right away, which maybe can you know be held off for a little bit to develop this project plan. And then the post-test, just make sure that the areas you are working on have been you know, worked on properly and satisfactorily. And so that, you know, there's nothing else left behind because sometimes you think you went far enough and then you do this test and you're like, nope, nope, we got to go a couple more feet. And so you really want to be thorough and check that. And we talked earlier about, does the space become more dangerous or contaminated while that's happening? But is there ever the case where if they don't do the job correctly, they could bring mold from one part of the house and actually spread it to another part of the house and like you'd have more of a problem? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, it's this, this does happen, right? Sometimes it's on accident. Sometimes it's just because the company doesn't know any better. Or, you know, like I said earlier, they're relying too heavily on products and not enough on the knowledge and, and what, the, what the process actually takes. And so when this type of thing happens, you know, it, it can create a bigger problem. Now you have to clean other rooms that, you know, maybe you, you didn't have to put so much attention on, you know, maybe now the HVAC needs to be cleaned again, if it was already clean. And so there's always consequences to, to actions that are made. And so I think that's why it's so important that when you hire a company, you're, you're making sure that each step of the way is really planned out well, right? Because if you're remediating a room and then cleaning the HVAC and then cleaning the home as an example, and you create that plan and that plan set up from day one, but then you find out along the way that that plan was done out of order because the other person didn't realize the importance of that order. You know, now you're in the situation where mistakes were made and now things are going to have to be done again. And so it, it can be not only frustrating, not only cause time delays, but also there, there's a cost factor there. So I think it's really important that you vet companies well. You want someone that's going to kind of be your QB, you know, your quarterback and plan everything out for you and take you to the finish line. Because if you're piecing things together with people who don't really know what they're doing, you, you tend to get a lot more heartache, financial hardship and problems as a result. So you talked about the importance of, you know, both the products and then the actual entire process. As for the products, because in your book, you talk about the specific products that you guys use. So I, I don't know, I, I have such a fear of toxic things. So I'm assuming the products that are used are, I mean, are they toxic? Great assumption. I don't use any chemicals. It's not necessary. There are all botanical products these days that have broad spectrum disinfecting capabilities. One of, you know, my favorite product to use is, is literally certified 100% botanical, not even 1% of a chemical in there. And so it's not needed. You know, the goal is to remove mold. It's to remove bacteria, remove toxins and particles. And so removing doesn't require killing, right? And so I think 
you know, the industry has evolved a lot, you know, over the past decade or so. And so as we, as we really understand more about the objective here that we want to remove things, we don't not necessarily want to kill them and just leave them there. These broad spectrum botanical disinfectants have worked wonders at providing amazing results and not having these harmful toxic chemicals in people's homes that are continuously off gas long after you're done. And so that's, that's been a really important thing for me and with the company that I founded and making sure that we're doing this as safe as possible. The products we're using are, are safe as possible, that they're tested to be effective. And I think that's really kind of how we put everything together. And we haven't changed products and at this point in, in about seven years. You know, that's a really interesting reframe, at least for me, because I, so just in my daily life in my apartment, I use all, I mean, like botanical based and natural cleaning ingredients. But then in my bathroom, there's just something about, I guess I have such a fear about mold and things like that. I like in the bathroom, I, I'm like, okay, I'll just use bleach and stuff. But it, it sounds like I could be using botanicals everywhere. So you can switch from bleach to hydrogen peroxide, which is, is, is definitely better, a better alternative because, you know, it's an oxidizer. So it's still going to have that whitening effect that we like from bleach, right? That thing that's probably one of the main reasons that we want to ever wanted to use bleach in the first place, because it ain't the smell, right? And if you use hydrogen peroxide, you're going to get that, you're not going to have this noxious odor. It, it goes inert pretty quick and converts back into water and oxygen, right? So it's really, it's, it's much safer, to use than, than bleach, much less taxing and harmful in the body. And that's, you know, kind of a less toxic alternative, of course, than, than using that. And for those that don't know, your, your body actually produces hydrogen peroxide naturally, your cells do. So it's, it's, not, it's not this foreign entity that you would you know, otherwise be entering the body and then having the fight to remove. I actually found a product recently, a brand reached out to me and they make a cleaning solution that is, it's literally just some form of iodine that they've said kills basically everything, but they said it's safe enough that you could even ingest it and be fine. But so I've been experimenting with that. That's interesting. Well, iodine, iodine's great. I mean, you know, when COVID was first hitting and there's a lot of iodine products that were, you know, trying to defend against getting COVID, you know, when you're around people and stuff that was, you know, supposedly very effective. So we know that the properties of iodine and being able to, you know, kill um, microbiological contaminants is, is pretty good. So here's a huge question, and I know a lot of people think about this. I have thought about this for so long. So after you've done the remediation or, or even when you're dealing with the whole issue, your actual objects afterwards, do you need to get rid of everything? If you keep like that one thing... Where does the mold linger? Can you get it out of your own personal objects? You talk about like porous versus non-porous objects in the book. How big of a deal is it, people's possessions? So this is a very complex topic in and of itself because, you know, for some, it's not that big of a deal at all. For others, it, it is. And so it really is going to be dependent on the person. So we let's just talk about it scientifically for a second, right? So our house has living organisms producing particles and toxins whether it's mold, bacteria, et cetera. And those circulate in the air, they bind with our dust, they kind of settle all over our stuff, right? So anything that's non-porous that we can remove dust at 100% efficacy from it, we're fine. But when we have porous items, especially like a fabric couch, for example, 
that dust can get embedded into the fibers. Mold and bacteria and those toxins can get embedded into the fibers. And actually, you know, looking at mold, for example, and bacteria and toxins are even smaller, but they're 25 to 50 times smaller than what the eye can see. And so if you take your fabric couch and you put it under a microscope at 50 times zoom, right? It's those little threads are going to look like gaping holes for something that small. And so I think when we put that into perspective, you know, stuff's going to get embedded into our couch. We're going to plop down on it. And then that's going to aerosolize all the stuff that's in the couch and enter our breathing zone. And we're not going to feel typically that great, especially if we are sensitive. With that being said, you know, you may want to consider tossing that couch, but there's so many variables. Like where was that couch? Was that couch in the immediate room that was the worst? Was that couch, you know, 17 rooms away? You know, where was that couch? I think is really going to help answer some questions of what's the likelihood of it. You know, when we talk about being 100% certain, if you want to be 100% certain, you got to throw away the couch. But if you want to, you know, maybe not throw away everything and you're looking to salvage some things, especially some porous items, the best thing that you can do is do the best that you can at cleaning it. I mean, vacuum it really thoroughly, maybe spray it with like a, a botanical antimicrobial and give it a good scrubbing. And, you know, from there, if you can be, if you do everything else right and you keep a couple of things and you do your best at cleaning those things, then it's really up to the person on how they feel that determines if they can keep it or not. And so I've had people that were like, I'm not removing my wall-to-wall carpets. And so we vacuumed them, we cleaned them, we did everything we could. Post-testing was done and miraculously everything was perfect. That's like, well, you know, I couldn't do that again if I tried probably because that was just luck. Because then I've had people who did everything. And then I'm getting a call like, Hey, every time I'm around this couch that I really wanted to save, I don't feel that well. It's like, well, you know, we may want to consider throwing away the couch then, right? And so it's not a perfect science. There's so many variables. And so you can never be a hundred percent certain. And so it really comes down to the person and what their financial situation is and how, how they're going to feel too, right? Cause there's a lot of mental gymnastics that happens with this, right? There's you know, you, you get sick from from being in, inside your home. There's a lot of trauma that that comes with. And for some folks, they're like, I, I just need a fresh start. I'm throwing everything away. And that's that's a very personal choice. You know, there are some things that, that may be valid to throw away. But, you know, there are some things like non-porous items, even certain semi-porous items that can effectively be cleaned. So, you know, it it's 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 very confusing. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, you know, you, you want to clean everything as thoroughly as you can. And it's really, it's really a personal decision that you got to make at that point. Does time have any effect on it? And the reason I've been thinking about that is when I moved from my moldy apartment in LA to Atlanta, I brought, I mean, clothes with me. I've wondered if, if there's anything in the clothes and if I should have gotten rid of them. Do the spores die eventually or go away? And also you mentioned a product in your book that can clean clothing. I was wondering if that is still effective or if that's still something you recommend. Yeah. So people have been having a lot of success using things like Borax EC3 laundry additive to clean their clothes. And they're having a lot of success with that. You know, there, there have been a, you know, very small percentage, maybe, you know, two to 3% who are so sensitive that 
doesn't matter what you do. They, they're not, it, it won't work for them. Time helps because, you know, there's a lot that, there's a lot that happens with time, right? Our bodies change over time too. And so once you start handling the, you know, the big issue, right? The problem that, you know, for, for example, you moved, right? So you moved out of the problem. Sure. Maybe you brought some stuff with you, but once you're out of that problem, of course, you're getting some exposure from some of the stuff that you brought but probably not as nearly as bad as when she once had it living in that apartment, right? So what ends up happening is your body, especially with everything that you do, right, to biohack your body and be in control of your body, your body is going to heal over time, right? And so as your body heals, you become less and less sensitive also kind of kind of in conjunction. And that, that, does, ha- that does take time. And for some people, it could take six months, some people two years, some, some even longer, unfortunately. But uh, you know, that, that time heals all statement really holds true as long as, you know, you've done the work and are continuing to put in the work to, you know, heal yourself and get out of that situation. That's empowering. And what about good practices for just in general, maintaining your mold-free environment, being preventative? Where should people really be paying attention? You talk in your book about certain problem areas, like in the kitchen and bathrooms, like, are there things people can do to just be really preventative? Yeah. So routine inspections, I probably said this earlier, but just, just to drive that home, you know, roofs, doors, windows, all the things that tend to leak on our home that we typically neglect until they leak, it's better to be proactive on those things. You know, get your get someone up on your roof every year and make sure it's in good condition. The flashing's good. You know, the drip edge is good. Everything on the roof is, you know, all the shingles or tiles or whatever your roof is made out of is intact. Things settle and change over time. We always want to be on top of that. Same thing with your windows and doors. You know, depending on if your windows are new construction windows or or replacement windows, you know, they're going to be installed differently and they're going to have different waterproofing countermeasures with replacement. It's literally just caulk. There's caulk is the only thing stopping water from getting in. New construction windows will have a flange. They'll have flashing around them. So they're, you know, definitely a little better water tight wise, but that stuff breaks down too. And so, you know, you always want to stay on top of that. You'd rather, you know, fix it while it's not a problem than let it get to a problem. Moisture obviously is, is, is enemy number one here. Water is earth's life source, right? Just like how we drink water, water provides life for viruses, bacteria, mold. I mean, you know, parasites, anything, you name it. It's, it's the life source of this planet. And so we want to, you know, ha- we want to have access to water, just not infested in our homes. And so the, the key really is here is moisture management. If you have basements, crawl spaces, making sure that they're waterproof well, you're diverting water away from the house as best as you can. You have dehumidification systems so that when water does come in, you're, you're dealing with it, not allowing it enough time for, for bacteria, mold, et cetera, to grow. When it comes down to just the home itself, humidity, right, is another form of moisture. It's, it's, it's water, it's vapor that's in the air. And so what we want to do is we want to make sure there's not too much moisture in that air. And we do that through like dehumidification systems. If you're on a drier climate and you're using humidifiers because it's too dry, understood, but making sure that you have some way of controlling it so that it never just goes off the rails and keeps the humidity way too high. You don't want that. The other thing I, I would say, last two things that are pretty important, easy to forget about. One is HVAC filtration, right? So A, a lot of us don't even have good filtration, meaning that you know most of the filters we buy 
are, you know, $20 filters or less, maybe they're Merv 8 to 10 or even 13, but they're not getting a small of enough particle like mold or bacteria from getting into the system and contaminating the coil because that coil always condensates and it's a wet environment, which mold and bacteria, viruses, et cetera, love. So getting better filters on our HVAC systems, basically turning our HVAC systems into gigantic air purifiers is going to be an amazing thing that you can do. And last but not least, you know, there's a reason why we test the dust and it's because our dust is everywhere. Everything that's in our environment settles in our dust. But the key is, is, is to remove dust. Every time we remove dust, we're removing contaminants. And there's a lot more than mold and bacteria. We have pollen, we have, you know, pet allergens and pet dander, tons of indoor pathogens that come into our home, you know, throughout the day as we open doors and windows. It's a normal part of life. But the more we allow dust to accumulate, you know, the more contaminants it's going to have. And the more contaminants it has, every breath that we take, it has the opportunity to enter the body, you know, impact the bloodstream, depending on obviously how small the particle is, you know, that's where we start to notice differences in our health. So I think it's really important that we're staying on top of dust, you know, and cleaning. And even that, you know, it can, can be a bit of a challenge because we always have to make sure we're cleaning while it's damp, meaning like damp rags, mops, et cetera. Because if we do any dry wiping or dusting with like those feather dusters, feather dusters, all you're doing is kicking stuff back around into the air. So, you know, it's, it's just kind of looking at some, some things a little differently. You know, nobody ever told us that owning a home or heck even renting a home would be this big of a challenge, but it, it really is. It's a big responsibility and it really is important because it impacts our health and it's something that we're often not thinking about. Hi friends, an incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold control contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof Coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, <laughs> drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof Coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof Coffee, and it is called Danger Coffee, and friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. 
On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee and use the coupon code MELANIEAVALON to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10-year decade bulletproof coffee habit. But sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. That is so helpful. Question about the HVAC system. Is there a certain brand of filters that you like? I don't know if you're comfortable making recommendations. I've just been so haunted by this question. I want to have the perfect filter. So my favorite filter is the IntelliPure Super V. Oh, wait, writing that down. What is it? <laughs> the IntelliPure Super V. And if you go to homecleanse.com and you just click products, you can you can find it on there. It gives you all the specifications. There's there's only one reason that I that I really enjoy it. It's a MERV 16 filter, which is the highest rating you can get in a filter these days, and it only has the pressure drop of a MERV 8. And so, you know, I get a lot of emails about it because people were like, you know, so and so said you can't have a MERV 16 filter because that's what they told me in my apartment complex. <laughs> right, because then it'll cause stress on the system and freeze the coil, and they're not wrong, but. This particular product is really amazing because first off, it was like the first one in the marketplace and they had solved that problem and were able to make a MERV 16 by creating different chambers for the air to pass through. And so what happens is, is it's not losing as much pressure as it, as it normally would if it was just a, you know, a thick three inch filter. So this thing is, is pretty large. It almost looks like a, uh, one of those 1990 computer modems that just like attaches to your HVAC. Yeah, but it's, it's, it is that way because it has to basically allow the air to pass, still filter it, but do so in a way that it's not restricting the airflow as much as it normally would if it was just a solid, you know, three inch filter. So I, I think that's really probably the main reason why I like it. You know, since it came out in 2017, there's been some others, even more recently, I think High Air Perfect 16 is, is just another example of one. Looking at the studies and the specs that Intellipure has done, I mean, I, I, I really can't find something that gets such a small particle. I mean, even some of their lab work was showing that 80 or 90% of the time, they were getting something as small as seven nanometers, right, removed. So that's the size of some viruses. That's how tiny 
which is really impressive. And so, yeah, that's, that's, that's probably my favorite device. And, you know, I hope that more and more devices keep entering the marketplace because we just, we need to just keep getting smaller and smaller and figuring it out. That's amazing. Next Christmas, I might have to gift this to everybody. It's funny because they replaced my HVAC system in the summer and it started, I mentioned this earlier, it started like freezing over every morning. I Right now I'm using a Merv 13. They're like, you just can't use that filter. I was like, well, listen, it wasn't freezing over before you replaced it. I was wondering about that. So it's just so good to know. I'm so excited. going to order that right after this. Okay. One last big topic, and it's sort of two different things. As far as actually going through the process of doing this, you have a really helpful, informative section on dealing with insurance companies in your book. What actually surprised me was that I guess it never occurred to me that all of the insurance companies sort of have similar systems or protocols, like like basically what is and what is not covered. What is covered? <laughs> like, I mean, you don't have to like go through the gamut because people can just give the book, but like in general, if people suspect they have an issue, what are the chances or the odds that the insurance company will, you know, cover some of it? Yeah. And this has been, you know, the bane of my existence since I've kind of been working on in this industry for the last 12 years is, is you know, trying to really navigate insurance industry and really understand, you know, what is covered, what's not covered. And, you know, I can't tell you how many people are putting in insurance claims and, you know, they're getting denied or, you know, they're saying you have a $10,000 max. So here's a check for 10 grand. And they're like, but I have $60,000 worth of damage here, you know? And so it's, it's very frustrating. I think what it really boils down to is this, the insurance industry, it's, it's pretty regulated, as, as probably most people know, and it's regulated state to state. So meaning it's, there's not like one national program we all follow. It's like every state has their own regulations. And so if an insurance company wants to do business in that state, they have to abide by those regulations. And, you know, I think our government tries to do a great job at, you know, making holding the insurance companies accountable because there's been nightmares naturally uh, over the years. But, you know, the, the government doesn't know or doesn't see this because they're not in it every single day, right? And me being in it every single day, the, the things, the problems that I see are the fact that many people don't understand when they're buying insurance what they're actually getting. And, you know, I, I actually just bought a new house uh, a couple months ago, had to go through this whole insurance process. And, and, and even though I knew what I was talking about, it was still a nightmare because, yeah, you're, you're talking through this. I moved to a new state, so I had to kind of learn how they do things and things were a little different. But essentially, it's like they wanted to cap mold at 10,000. I'm like, look, with all due respect, I, I do this for a living. And I know that if I have a leak, it is most likely going to cost more than 10,000 to you know, fix it and put it back together and all this stuff. And and they're like, well, you know, we, we can go up to 20,000, right? It's like, no, no, no. I, I'd like to have proper coverage here. You know, if a house burns down, you know, they'll they'll typically pay to rebuild you a house, right? But luckily, houses don't burn down as much as water comes in. So that's something that they really haven't tried to subvert so much and minimize their their risk. What it it really boils down to is water damage is a big risk for them because the statistic is one out of every 10 years, someone's going to have a water damage claim. And so if you multiply that by how many clients they have, I mean, it's a pretty big payout. We have to create a win-win, right? Because we can't have insurance companies go out of business because then we're screwed. But we also need to make sure people are educated. And so 
what I've seen, because I did this myself in the past before I became educated about it, was you call a bunch of companies and you get the best rate, right? I want to pay the, the least per possible per year. What people don't realize is that, you know, again, it's kind of back to what we said earlier. Like it's, it's not apples to apples, right? The reason it's the cheapest is because that company doesn't cover certain things. And because they don't cover certain things, they're more comfortable charging less and taking less of a risk. And so one of those things typically is mold. Some of them even cap, you know, water damage, meaning, you know, you have a leak, maybe there isn't mold, you caught it fast, but there's a cap on how much you could spend. And if your whole house floods and it's not just one small leak, you're stuck paying for that above and beyond that cap. And so it's been really frustrating. You know, I, I urge everybody listening to this, call your insurance company right now, whatever your find out what your mold coverage is and just ask for ask for the maximum they will give you even even some of the i don't know what companies you would call this but you know almost every company has at least a $50,000 max and so you can ask for it obviously it's more but you're talking you know for me it was like an extra $20 a month right and so yeah grand scheme of things yes it's a little couple hundred bucks more per year but I'd, you'd rather, you know, you'd rather not need it and have it than not have it and need it, right? And so people really need to understand that. The other thing is insurance companies, you know, their their goal is to keep the cost down, right? And so I've always had a very uh, interesting battle with insurance companies over the years trying to get paid for things that need to be done because, you know, there's been environmental impacts to the home. So for example, roof leaks, right? Water comes down and now we have mold, we have bacteria, you know, there's all these things growing in the wall. We, you know, we're able to test for it. We identify, we show them and, you know, they're like, well, just cut this two feet off the floor. And it's like, no, no, you don't understand. The water came from above. What is cutting the floor going to help with? Well, the water travels down and it'll collect at the floor. Yeah. But the water passed through, it's still wet, right? And so there's still going to be mold and bacteria going up the wall. You can't just leave it like that. And you start to get into like a fight, right? And they say, well, that's just the way we do things. It's like, maybe that's the way you do things, but that's not the way things should be, be, should be done. And this is not going to restore the house to what's considered an original condition. And, you know, there's, it's just, the insurance company, from 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 what I see, you know, we need changes, just because we know a lot more today than we ever have. So we need to modernize some of these things. They need to be educated well too. And obviously, a company is full of people, and so it's not just a CEO of an insurance company that we need to educate. We need to educate the whole company so that everybody understands how important this is to do it right. And what we need to make sure is that people are covered to do things the right way so that they don't get impacted or, or adversely affected for health from their health side of things. Because I think that's what happens just way too much right now. And it's, it's really sad. And what about people in apartments, you know, with renters insurance, are you pretty much at the whim of the complex as to what they will do? So renters insurance is actually pretty awesome. I, I encourage everyone to, to get it. So for example, it, it typically covers your stuff, right? And so let's say you're, you know, let's say a pipe leaks and it's your landlord's responsibility to maintain the pipes, pipe leaks, okay. 
landlord's going to come in, he's going to remediate your place, he's going to fix it all up. That's that's something that he's responsible for. And the insurance company typically, um, depending on the coverage that your landlord has, will will cover that, right? But they won't cover your stuff. And so, because the landlord's insurance company is not going to cover the tenant's contents. And so, most landlords will actually write it into their lease that it, you know, you have to get renter's insurance and you can't live there without it because what they're trying to do is if God forbid the place leaks, it's not like the landlord caused the leak, right? These things happen. And what ends up happening is now all of your stuff is damaged. If there was mold, you know, now all your stuff's contaminated and it costs a lot of money to clean it, costs money to replace it. And so we get into this match where the tenants like well, the landlord should pay for it all. The landlord's insurance company won't pay for it all. So then that brings puts kicks it back to the landlord and tenant, you know, fighting over who should pay for it. And it's just a really sad situation because I feel for everybody, right? It's like the tenants living there and they don't that they shouldn't have to pay for anything. They they didn't do anything. The landlord didn't cause the leak and you know, obviously some situations they didn't do the right thing or whatnot. It's a different story, but for a typical case, you know, this just happens, right? And so that's why everybody's supposed to have insurance. If you have good insurance for as a tenant, they'll actually come in and pay for it all to be cleaned or and replace whatever needs to be replaced. And it's actually a very pretty uh, easy process. The only thing there too is when you buy renter's insurance, you know, make sure that, you know, you really like value your stuff and make sure that you get enough coverage for everything because God forbid you have to replace everything. You know, some people accumulate 20, 50, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of stuff over a lifetime. And so you want to make sure that you're not back at square one should something happen. You also want to up your, your mold and fungi coverage there too, because yeah, if you don't ask for it, sometimes you'll get the bare minimum and it can be costly if you need it. Yeah, and I think I mentioned this earlier. I guess the one place I feel like it can be hard to have agency is if if the complex or the landlord doesn't take it as seriously as you do and so they aren't putting in the initiative to deal with the mold issue. And that happens. That happens a lot. That you know, I've been I've been a, an expert witness in quite a few of those cases. And it's sad. And and I think that, you know, it's a societal problem. It's not always about money. Sometimes it's really a societal issue where, you know, society doesn't come on board and have this understanding. And and we've definitely have moved the needle a lot in the last 10 years, but we're still kind of, you know, if you go out to a coffee shop and you start asking people, Hey, do you ever get, you ever, you ever hear about anybody getting sick from mold? you could tell, I mean, there's a, you survey, you know, 10 people, you're going to get probably at least 40% of people, at least, if not way more, that'll tell you, you know, no, I, that's, you can't, no, you can't get that. That's impossible. You can't get sick from that. And, and so, you know, we're, we're still at the, we're still like not very on board as a society about how important air quality is and some of the different microbiological contaminants that can mess up our air quality and, and, you know, impact our bodies. And I think, you know, that definitely plays a part in it, right? Because you get these big companies, you get these, you know, these people that work at these companies, and they bring their own ideas and beliefs, right, to work. And so you're trying to tell them, I have this big mold problem. And they're like, yeah, yeah, sure. Right. And so it creates a lot of these, these unnecessary issues. You know, if we all just kind of did a little bit of research and started to connect some dots, I think we would 
take it more serious. And that's really what we need. In, in how the legal process works, it's like once you start seeing a ton of people lose money over it, that's, that's almost like what it takes. We need, you need people to lose money over it before people start to say, wow, I better take this serious. And then as that happens, and you know, then you get more and more evidence, you get more and more case study and case law that starts to transform things, right? From a liability perspective. I, I hate to say that because it's like, I hate, I hate that money is tied to everything, but it's, it's a harsh reality that I've been learning along the way. And I think I told this earlier, but when I had the water damage in my apartment, I mean, they weren't doing anything until I hired a third party test or testing people. And then I showed them the, the results and then they, then they fixed it. And then I was able to, I just asked them to deduct it from the rent, the testing that I had done, and they did that. So that's something that listeners can look into. Some states, I know we have a fix and deduct clause. If they don't fix it within a certain amount of time, you can basically fix it yourself and deduct it from the rent. So that's something to to look into for people. But yeah, just to touch on what you were just speaking about, that's why I'm just so grateful for everything that you're doing with you know, raising all of this awareness and educating people. It's just really, really important. So thank you so much for what you're doing. Can people work with you? So, I mean, you have your company, so do you take new clients or? Yeah, of course. Home Cleanse is, uh, so I'm no longer the CEO of Home Cleanse. I am the chairman of the board now. We have a CEO. His name is John. He's an amazing guy. He ran a successful um, shipping and logistics company and comes a wealth of experience to just help make sure that we can grow faster, reach more people, because ultimately, you know, we have to get bigger if we want to help more and more people. So that part's really exciting. Home Cleanse is a great company and someone I definitely would recommend giving a shout to if you're, you know, suspecting mold might be a problem and you're not sure, not only just mold, but just you think that your house air quality isn't as great as it could be. And you want to take a look at that and see some scientific evidence as to what it is and what to do about it. That's a great thing. As far as me, I I do consulting right now. I I can't promise I'm going to do it forever, mainly because, you know, it's, it's, I'm getting to that mindset where, I want to help as many people as I can. And right now, you know, one individual at a time is not really the the right path. And I want to start creating a lot more educational material this, this upcoming year so that maybe people don't need me one-on-one for the situation. And so that's, that's definitely a route that I'm going to be taking later this year. But for now, yeah, people, people can definitely work with me one-on-one. I'm always happy to, I, I enjoy it very much. So every project's like a, a puzzle to me to put together. And so I love challenging my mind and, you know, learning about families, what they're going through, you know, their home and how I can help them and improve. And I'd say over the past 12 years now, watching people's quality of life improve after making, you know, changes to their home has been one of the most remarkable things. And obviously, after the success that I've had, even even young, you know, younger in my career, it's what kept me going, you know, and we kept me realizing like, this is way bigger than I ever thought. And, you know, really needs to grow so that people can have access to, to good, clean air quality and, and how important that really is to our, to our bodies and our health. I think it's been an amazing ride. So that really resonates with me. It's funny because people will often tell me that I should be doing, you know, one-on-one cons- consultations or I should become a doctor, which is all really incredible work, but I feel like I personally can make much more impact not doing the one-on-one stuff. You know, instead having a large 
platform and spreading awareness and education. So I think that's awesome that you're doing that. Yeah. That brings me to the last question that I ask every single guest on this show. And it's perfect because I I just realized more and more each day how important mindset is. So what is something that you're grateful for? You know, I'm, I'm really grateful for my family who provides me this opportunity to go out there and do what I do each day. I have two kids, Mason and Olivia, three and seven years old, and my wife, Colby, who I, I couldn't I couldn't enjoy doing the things that I do if I didn't have just such a great family supporting me, you know, every step of the way. I work a lot, as you might imagine. And so it's great to be able to have this time where I shut off and then, you know, go be a dad and husband. And I think that's, that's what really drives me is to have that, that good balance. And then of course, just like every single person that I've ever gotten to, to speak to, to meet with, to help in some some fashion or another, whether it was just a piece of advice or a full-blown project. I'm just very grateful for you know life itself and, and everything that's that's come to fruition so far. Last thing that I want to say I'm grateful for is the future because I know this is just the beginning. Well, that is awesome. Well, I am so, so grateful for everything that you're doing. It's like I said, just so needed, so appreciated. I cannot wait to air this episode and just have it. This episode is going to be such a go-to resource that I'm just going to throw at everybody anytime I get any questions about mold. I'm going to be like, just listen to this. So thank you so much. This has been absolutely amazing. I so appreciate it. And for listeners, well, they don't know that we actually recorded this on two different days because <laughs> we didn't get to everything. So I so appreciate your time, especially right before, right before Christmas Eve. Yes. And I want to thank you too, because, you know, this has been an amazing podcast. You've asked such amazing questions. You really dug deep on this. You know, um, I feel, you know, I go on, I go on podcasts and, you know, we get to a lot of basics, but I think the way in which you brought this all together, you know, kudos to you because we were able to cover some really complex topics, give a lot of great information. So I hope people learn a lot and just want to, to take a moment to appreciate you for putting this together because I know that a lot of people are going to benefit. Well, thank you so much. My day is made. (laughs) I really look forward to all of your future work. I will be eagerly following you. Maybe you can come back in the future as well. Yes, I would love that. Here's to a, a sparkling bright 2023. You know, happy holidays. Happy New Year. You too. Thanks, Michael. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.